0: This is Mark Gandhi with CFO Bookshelf. Professor Edward Hess of the Darden School of Business is one of my all-time favorite business authors. He's written twelve books, and his latest is Hyper Learning: How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. And what a thrill and an honor it is to have him on the show today. That's coming up next on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed. CFO Practice Link. Have you heard of Ed Hess?
1: No, before uh before our talk this morning, I had not I had not heard of Ed Hess. Having looked through the the list of books that that he's that he's written, I'm surprised I haven't. And I just continued to be amazed at the number of new authors that we come across in the over the course of of doing the show.
0: I came across grow to greatness. I I'd have to look at when I bought it and it could be that he was one of the authors that Vern Hardy said, you've got to read him. So I've been on Vern's e-newsletter list for like 10 plus years and ever. And so I do, one of the reasons I like his newsletter is he'll mention books or authors. And the more I think about it, that's probably where I got the title. So I went out and got it, started reading it, could not put it down. Probably in the top 10 business books I've ever read. I've learned something since reading it. I've I've recommended it to other CEOs. I have like, there's a half and half. One half is like, you got this high dopamine. I want to do, 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 do. It's very results oriented. And it's like, they may not get as much out of it. But then you've got these very deliberate chief executive officers that are very deliberately thinking about the future, about growth. So it's like it's like they want fast growth, but they want non-chaotic growth. Those are the ones who love growth to greatness. So I read the book and I just thought, man, Bruce, I wish I would have had this book even 25 years ago, because I worked in one company where I just thought, We kept screwing up and we kept having people that are probably effective at growing a $5 million business, but you can't have them even in a $25 million business, even if you can develop them. I just, I think some people are more naturally geared to work in a bigger organization on that high fast growth curve. It's like, man, I wish I'd had this earlier. A couple of quick points, uh, Bruce, he's written 12 books. He also wrote Smart Growth, and I'm not I'm not listing every book that he has, just the ones that I bought. So Grow to Greatness, highly recommend it. Get it, read it, use it. it d- 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 just buy it and read it. If you don't like it, send me a bill, I'll pay for it. <laughs> and I'll pull it out of Bruce's uh, uh, budget. Smart Growth, great book. The Physics of Business Growth, very good, Learn or Die?, is very good. So you want to start a business? This is hilarious. Uh, before my interview with Ed, I wanted to support him and I went to buy it. Mark, you've already bought this book, idiot. <laughs> so, so I already have that, so I haven't read it. I did go ahead and buy this week, Growing an Entrepreneurial Business. I'm not going to read it from cover to Well, I will read it cover to cover. I'm not going to read it one setting. I'll probably read it over the course of the next five, six, seven weeks. But I do want to hit maybe one chapter, maybe a week. And I'm, I'm anxious to see what Ed has on growing an entrepreneurial business. But our topic today will be his newest book that came out in early September 2020, Hyper Learning. Bruce, are you a hyper learner? learner?
1: I guess I'll find out. Um, that's uh, My my curiosity is peaked. So maybe without further ado, why don't we get to the interview with Ed Hess?
0: So Ed, love the book, Hyperlearning, Learning. And by the way, the subtitle is How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. I think the subtitle could have also been Lifelong Learning for Business Leaders. Is, do you agree with that, Ed? I
2: agree. I agree. It, it could have been Lifelong Learning for Business Leaders. In fact, that's a good subtitle and uh, because that's what it's all about. All right. In order to d- adapt to change, you're going to have to be a lifelong learner and you're going to have to learn at a pace that's much faster than most of us have had to learn in our careers so far because the pace of change is going to accelerate. The pace of knowledge creation, all of this being generated by very smart technology. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh I'm not going to tell my publisher that that you came up with a better tagline than they did but that but it is you are exactly right it's a good fit.
0: No yours is outstanding. Hey before we go further you've already you've already mildly scolded me. I'm not allowed to call you Professor Hess. I'm not allowed to call you Edward Hess. I actually want to call you Mr. H- Mr. Hess but you won't let me. So before we go further if people hear me saying Ed is not out of disrespect. It's like you told me to.
2: No, thank you.
0: So I love your definition for hyper-learning. In fact, I've been repeating it. In fact, now it's stuck. So instead of me saying it, what is your definition for hyper-learning?
2: Continuous, high-quality learning, unlearning, and relearning. I love it. And, and you, and what it, what it, what it brings into play is this concept of unlearning, all right, which is much harder than... People probably will think it is, all right, because you got to unlearn in order to relearn. You got to let go of what you think is right, what your stories about the world. And so you've got to basically overcome our innate way we're sort of wired to be.
0: You use the word high quality. And what I'm hearing is, and as I got this out of the book, this is effort, this is work. This is not necessarily tactical, is it?
2: No, this is not tactical. It's cognitive, it's emotional, and it's behavioral, right? Because ultimately, ultimately, it gets down to how one behaves and how one manages what's going on inside of themselves so that one can unlearn and relearn and and it does take work and that's why the book is is broken into really two parts a new way of being okay what do we need to do and then a new way of working what's the workplace what's what's the right type of workplace that will basically uh enable hyperlearning enable humans to basically unlearn in the workplace if you think about most workplaces you know the they're designed for you know, you know what to do and do it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And unlearning is sort of scary. It's sort of like saying, "Wow, this is not working anymore," and you know maybe I'm making mistakes and we need to think this through. You know that type of conversations are not you know don't happen in a lot of workplaces. And so you're you're exactly right. It's, it takes a lot of work. Uh, the good thing is, all right, from working with people over years. It's not rocket science, all right? It takes discipline, dailiness, rigor, and it takes the right frame of mind, and it takes one taking ownership of themselves, all right, and working on themselves, all right, and doing the personal work. But when you do it, and it's just, you know, and if you do it, you know, working on something every day, you see the results, so it's 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 not rocket science. It comes down to rigor, self discipline, uh, and really intent. All right, I intend to be the best learner I can be.
0: We are recording this interview on September the thirtieth. I think the book came out on the first of the month. Is that correct? How, how right. what how's it going so far? What's been the reception so far, Ed?
2: Well, my. My publisher is very happy. So I, I guess it's, I, you know, I don't know numbers. My publisher is very happy. Um, it's gotten good. I mean, it's gotten a, a lot of press. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work with uh, various people on it. And so it's resonating. Uh, I think, un, I mean, un, unfortunately, COVID is, is, is a very, very yes uh, bad thing. But I think that the disruption caused by COVID in the workplace of people, most people, a lot of people having to go from the workplace to, you know, either working at home or et cetera, or working differently in the workplace, that that and experiencing, in effect, like our normal way of doing things has been blown up. All right. And to some extent, the, the book is also resonating because, That type of velocity of change and to be able and having one's life topsy-turvy because of change is what's only going to continue with technology as technology continues to advance. So I think part of it is, is that it's resonating because if the, if you will, the tagline of book, of the book, speed of change, people are having to adapt now because of COVID, because COVID is a change agent and they're saying, wait a minute. I've got, to, I've got to be, you know, I've, I've got to do things differently. I got to learn how to do Zoom. I got to learn how to emotionally connect. All right. On, um, uh, Zoom, I've got to basically, uh, you know, manage my work life and my home life. If we got children, et cetera. And so it's just people have been thrown into this, you know, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, we're, you know, we're not going to go back to normal. All right? there's going to be a, there's going to be a different a different normal and that's all part of human adaptation. I mean if you really think about it, hyper learning is the ability to adapt, the ability to evolve, the ability to keep up and, 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 and uh, basically keep up with the technology because the whole game is is that I'm going to have meaningful work, you're going to have meaningful work if we can do things the technology can' not do. Well the technology is going to be getting smarter, smarter, smarter faster 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 what does that mean? Well, we have to really excel at doing what the technology can do well and that will evolve
0: before I ask you who the intended audience is I want to put in a quick plug. I'm a little bit of a book addict if you haven't guessed but I the way I have done your book Ed it may be unique I started I listened to the book first and now I'm going back and reading the Kindle version. And so the, the listening experience is you get the key big concepts and then now you can go back and start reading it. And I'm just saying that is a, it's a great way to go through your book. So j- again, that's just an idea for people who have not even picked up the book yet.
2: Yeah. And may, um, can I add a yes and onto that?
0: Yes, please.
2: So a yes and, not a yes, but a yes and. And people, you know, bought the book. If they go to www.edhess.org, which is the book website, you can come on and register and basically say, I've bought your book. And they can download, either digitally or hard copy, a 143-page My Hyper Learning Journal, which basically is you know probably 130 pages of blank pages but it, it's designed, it takes each of the reflection times in the book. The book, is a, as you know, is a learn by doing it is, Yep. It actively engages people, tries to engage people in making meaning of uh, the, 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 the concepts and operationalize them. In other words, the book is more than a, most most business books are concepts. They tell you stories. This book I've tried to design is an active learning book where you learn by doing, make meaning of it, and operationalize the concept by behavioral change. So it's got reflection times and it's got workshops with deliverables. And so that little My Hyper Learning Journal gives you 143 pages to do all your work in and to keep it in one place.
0: That will be in the show notes, definitely. And I did not know that. I am going to download that this morning. So who, who is the intended audience? I mean, I no the i I know the answer to that, but I want to hear from you who's this intended for?
2: Well, the intended audience is 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 quite broad all right it's clearly it's written with a business overlay, but really and truly, the intended audience is anybody age sixteen and over all right and in fact, I have some um, I have to keep their names confidential some very well. I guess esteemed national educators that have reached out to me to, to talk about how to create a hyper learning high school. All right. I mean, so it's, it's basically, basically, that's why I use the age 16, 17 on, um, if you're, if, if you're in any of that age group, you're going to need the skills that are laid out in the book in order to have meaningful work going forward. And so, of course, it applies to every existing business, all right? It applies to private companies. It applies to public companies. And, and quite frankly, the bigger the organization, the more difficult it's going to be to adapt. And they're the organizations that probably even need it the most. The, most. They're, the organ- they're the organizations that are the most difficult to change. All right, and uh, uh, be, for many reasons, and so, but does a does a does a small business owner? I'll say, I use the word need, but that's maybe an over. I don't want to come across as. Uh, would it help a small business owner to read this book? Yes, because a small business owner's got to be sitting back and thinking, okay. I'm delivering value to these people this way. How can technology do some of this or what I do? Okay, if technology is going to do it, it's going to do it. It's not going to be stopped. What do I need to do to change my value proposition? How can I make sure I stay in, if you will, in the value chain? And the good news about small businesses and service businesses is, is that one of the key things that the technology is not, at least in the near future, going to be able to excel at, is the human emotional connection with people, all right? Emotionally connecting with people in order to understand their needs, to show you care about them, to build that human emotional relationship is so mission critical, because, you know, ultimately, over, let's just say, the next decade or so, Our key human uniqueness in the workplace is going to be our emotional skills, all right? That more so than even our thinking skills, all right? Now, we will need certain types of thinking skills, but it's the emotions will be our uniqueness, at least for the near future.
0: There is a reason I wanted to ask this question about the intended audience. This may create an awkward moment. So, And again, you're a man of humility, so this may be tough for you to hear, And this will be in the show notes. We don't have a lot of time. We really don't have time to unpack this. But on your website, there's a four to five part blog piece where you talk about your personal life. And I read it not once, not twice. I read it three times. It was so good. And by the way, I'm talking to someone who is a gifted writer who's written 12 books, you're kind of like Clayton Christensen. You came from the business world, but you talk, you're very open. You're very human. You're, you're, you're laying it out there. So I also think the intended audience is yourself. Cause then I already read those blog pieces first. And then I started listening to hyper learning. I'm thinking, I think this is a journey that has gone through over the last 20 years. Is, is, am I a little bit, am I getting warm? <laughs> am I close?
2: Yes. Yes. You're, 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 you're warm. You've, uh, this book, this book, and the humility book, both are p- probably, and this sounds funny, let's say, came out of me, based on deep reflection of my experiences and and my uh, my life, and and because as you know, from reading those parts in the, in, in the book, I, I, my, my website designers, a a, a great, great team. And they, 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 you know, I think it's the title they gave it. Who is Ed really? All right. Cut through it. And, uh, but um, no, I mean, I, uh, I, uh, I fell into, you know, traps that, you know, a lot of people fall in and trying to be successful and uh, becoming very, very focused on uh, getting things done in, in my, and in my work and not, not spending enough time with uh, people that I worked with and everything and, you know, getting to know them and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, you talk about humility. I mean, I was, uh, uh, I was never an arrogant uh, person. I was always a a, a a kind person, but I was in the business world what you called a gunner. All right. I mean, I walked into a meeting, and my job was, my my intent was, I was going to be the smartest person in that room. Okay, and smart was was defined by not only the right answer, but having it the fastest, and and so you know. And I did a lot of reflection over the years and figured out that basically I adopted that strategy in the second grade. And from the second grade forward, up in, really until I hit the wall, it um, probably it was age 34 or 5-something. When I hit, you know, from age 6, I started school when I was 5, age 6 to 35. I mean, yeah, I was nice and kind and smiley and everything, but we walk into the room. I mean I was the I was the kid that sat in the first row of every class in, in high school and elementary school. And as soon as I was the guy raising his hand and moving it back and forth, the kind of pe- the people that you know, most people just say, What a what a pain, okay? But what I did was I trained my mind. I had a I had a real ability to remember stuff. And I mean that took me all the way to a senior partnership in Wall Street in the in the mid 30s, and uh, until you know I, I, I realized whoa you know I my, my life is uh, is out of balance okay, and my wife called me on it, and um, and um, uh, and you know I write about it, and it's embarrassing to write about it because you know it really makes me come across like I was. Okay. Sort of like just self-consumed with success. That was the American dream. And so, yeah, a lot of this book is stuff that I've learned the hard way. All right. I was an awful listener. All right. As soon as I figured out what the answer was, Mark, I interrupted you. All right. yeah, I didn't. Nobody. And that was, remember, be right, but be first to be right. If I didn't interrupt you, someone else may do. I mean, I did that all the way through my mid thirties, and so the whole thing about listening, the old thing about humility, the old thing about redefining myself is stuff that I learned over the years. And is hyper learning sort of like bringing lots of things together? From uh, yeah, yeah, and and that really—I'm uh, sorry—I'm going on so long. That really. Sort of, what's the white word? Congealed in December 2017. Because I didn't, I was in uh, 2017, it's uh, um, during Christmas time, and uh, I couldn't travel at that point, And so my wife took the grandchildren and everything to Iceland, and I was home for a week. And <clears throat> uh, I read a, a wonderful workbook uh, that basically said. You know, in effect, let's figure out how you got to where you are. And um, um, I think it's a path to every uh, uh, every every person's journey. Uh, but um, I can I can get that for you. And um, uh, my professor who did the first class in creativity at Stanford University. And so went through this whole thing for a week working through his workbook and saying, whoa whoa, there's a pattern here that goes back to age five. And all of that sort of went into my repertoire as I started thinking about behavior change with hyperlearning, constantly learning what gets in the way of it, how do you mitigate it before it starts. So a long-winded answer. <laughs> the answer is, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of what I have had to personally learn in the book.
0: Speaking of the book, we have a lot to unpack and I want to back up a little bit. And, and again, I appreciate those comments. And the name of the book you mentioned on humility, humility is a new smart. And again, I recommend that book as well. The hard part on your book, there is there's so much there. In fact, I every guest I give them an interview arc ahead of time and I blew it with you. I waited to almost like the last minute. I sent it to you over the weekend or on Monday. Well, there's just so much, Ed. Usually I'm two weeks ahead of time. It's like, well, do I pick this one? Do I pick this topic? So we got nine blocks. Think of a three by three. But we had another one this morning. So we're just going to pick 10 topics, 10 topics. And and thank you for helping me with this. So I would say this is a joint effort. So I'm just going to throw out some terms and just jump in, but the science of us again—hyper learning. Let's talk about the science of us, which is the, the opposite of either me, I, or something else. The science of us. Explain that. All right.
2: In order to be a hyper learner, learner, we have to understand why we need to do something different. All right. Why? Why do I need to? learn in a different way than I'm learning now. Well, the science of adult learning is crystal clear. And this is very hard for successful people and smart people to accept, but it's a science. We are all suboptimal learners. This is how we are wired. We are wired to go out into the world and seek confirmation of what we already believe, to seek affirmation of our ego, and to keep Seek cohesiveness of our stories, our mental models, our stories about how the world works. The science is clear. We go out in the world and we see what we believe. All right. Great point. Every person sees what they believe. So how do I rewire myself so I'm not a confirmation seeking animal? All right. And that happens when we listen, okay? But that also, that's the reason why it's so hard for any individual to be truly innovative or creative or explore the unknown. So you have to accept the science of us, which says that we're suboptimal learners, in order then to have the answer, why do I need to learn in a different way than I've learned before? And the answer is because the pace of change is going to be such, you're going to have to learn faster. But also, we humans are going to have meaningful work if we can do the type of work the technology can do. And that is very high order thinking, all right, higher order critical thinking, imaginative, creative, innovative thinking. And then when you get to the highest-level emergent thinking, sense-making, all right? Or, all right, or and, and all of these types of thinkings, since we are limited, all right, and we're going to, it will take us years to rewire ourselves, learning, we will learn more if we learn with others. We need other people to help us learn. Therefore, We've got to be really good at emotionally connecting with people in order to create the right environment. So the second big thing that humans are going to be able to do that the technology can't is to emotionally engage in positive ways with other human beings in the creation and delivery of services. So one needs to basically be able to, if you will, manage one's emotions, to be emotionally intelligent, all right, and to learn how to connect and relate to people in ways that basically sink us from a biochemical way so there's trust. So I got to think differently. I got to be really good at emotionally engaging with people, right? And then the third types of jobs are trade jobs, which require iterative, if you will, learning to understand what is the problem, and then iterative learning of solving the problem with a lot of manual dexterity. And so trade jobs where, you know, let's just take whether it's electrical work or plumbing work of having to crawl under places, and I don't know what the problem is, and so I'm going to try to diagnose it, but then I'm going to try this and try this and try this, okay, all the time, whether, you know, while I'm moving and going, you know, those jobs will be high-skilled jobs that will, you know, that will be, that will be, you know, that's going to be very hard for robots, smart robots, to do in a long, long time.
0: Being able to connect with other people, as you described, and then also the next topic, inner peace. Just real quickly, in your opinion, are these concepts that are taught in a typical MBA program? I don't think so. Are they?
2: No. Okay, I mean, uh, uh, human excellence in the digital age is going to be highly dependent on soft skills, because the hard skills, many of the hard skill skills, these are the thinking and data, etc., process is going to be done by the smart technology, and so there are schools that are making gains now, but historically, no. I mean, if you think about it, I mean. Um, You know, you can go back so many years. Have have people in you know MBA programs been taught how to manage their emotions, how to quiet their mind, how to quiet their ego? Okay, how to really reflectively listen to somebody? How does one behave if one is a reflective listener? No, Uh, and so yeah, and that's that's also part of all of the. You know the the model in the book is 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 basically to be a hyper learner. You got to go in with the right mindset, all right, the right story of why you should be and what it means, and then you got to learn behaviors, and then you got to use processes or practices to accomplish it with other people. And so it's basically it's a it's 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 a model that's behavioral driven, all right. It's all about behaviors, how you behave. I want
0: to be transparent with you as we talk about inner peace. I want to get your definition of inner peace. I want to be transparent with you, Ed. In my first uh, iteration of the interview arc, I left it out on purpose. And you're thinking, I wonder what he's thinking. Well, inner peace is addressed in the first chapter, and it is a key important concept. And the reason I left it out, again, I'm being transparent, that's an area of my life I've not mastered myself. And then in the next iteration, it's like, Mark, let, let's get inner peace in there. So, so again, I'm being transparent. Give us your definition of, of inner peace and why it's important for any person, young or old.
2: Yeah, yeah. Inner peace is having a, a state of being able to manage yourself so you have quieted your ego. You have a quiet mind. You have quiet body, calm body, and you go into a situation with a positive emotional state. So, inner peace, in a nutshell, is is how do I want to be when I come to our conversation? How do I want to be when I basically meet with this customer, this client? How do I want to be when I go to this team meeting? What is it? Who? how do I want to be when I come to the table, so to speak? How do I want to be when I come to the conversation? And the highest level of human cognitive and emotional performance comes about when one is quiet and calm inside, has this inner stillness. All right. The research is is overwhelming. Let's take quiet mind. About 50% of the time, our mind wanders. We go into meeting, people are talking, you know, some of us are figuring out the answer to, uh, you know, that or what we're going to ask people, or what we're going to say to people, or we're thinking about the meeting before, we're thinking about the meeting after. To be fully present and listening with an open mind, with nothing else going on, this calmness and stillness in your mind makes you a better listener, makes you more engaged. When you add quiet ego, where your ego is not tied up in trying to, where are these people wrong? Because this is what I think. Or I don't believe that because I think this. To quiet that ego and to be open-minded. Learning requires a whole group of behaviors. Open-mindedness, okay? Really good listening. Emotionally connecting and relating so you can form trust to collaborate and be totally open. And so all of this inner peace is the, is, is the, is the foundation to human excellence in the digital age. It's, it's the building block. Amy Edmondson, um, in her, uh, review of the book said, who would have thought that inner peace, otherness and hyper learning were the, were the three key skills needed for the digital age. And, and, and what's so fascinating about this, Mark is is the science of inner peace? It's now science, and it's been proved in modern times about science. But it began 2,500 years ago in basically the eastern and western philosophies. All right, whether it was the Chinese philosophy of Confucius, or whether it was the Buddhist philosophy, or it was it the Stoic philosophy? You read all of the philosophies, and you see that basically they have they they're different, but there's tremendous overlap. And this is, okay, how do I come to the table in a way that I'm the most receptive to learning? I'm most open to it, all right? And I got to quiet all this stuff. And we've never been trained. I don't know whether you have. I mean, I wasn't in any school. Never been trained about, okay, how do I basically take ownership and manage my inner world? Because my inner world is wired to confirm, affirm, and basically not make change. All right.
0: The next key point I want to bring up, and again, there's a lot of stuff to unpack, the five principles of the new smart. that Brilliant. And again, we could spend a whole show just on these five principles, but I'm going to give you the honor of, of going through those, Ed.
2: Yeah. Um, new New, New Smart's purpose is to help people define themselves in a way that's that, if you will, liberates them from their ego. All right. We all went to school. All right. Who who was deemed to be smart? The person who got the highest grades, who got the highest grades, the person who made the fewest mistakes, so we have basically been trained. All right. We've been trained all through our life to be right and to, and being smart is what we know or how much we know. Well, in the world we're going in, in the world today, but in the world that's even coming more so with, you know, the amount of knowledge and human connectivity and the speed of new knowledge generation. Okay there's no way I'm going to know more than a smart machine. Okay, I'll just use IBM Watson. You know, an IBM Watson is, there's an IBM Watson accountant, IBM Watson doctor. Okay, but IBM Watson doctor. IBM can basically download every scientific article written every week and download it. And Dr. Watson on Monday morning is contemporaneously knowledgeable, has upgraded the knowledge base. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of articles okay how many doctors read five articles a month no okay we can't keep up so new smart was designed to basically let's redefine where my ego gets invested i'm not defined by how much i know or what i know i'm defined by the quality of my thinking listening relating and collaborating It's a quality definition, all right? And since all of us can continuously improve our thinking, listening, it's a goal that we never reach the point. And so it it should make us feel somewhat humble, all right? And when I use the word humility, I'm not using the dictionary meek or submissive. I'm using the psychological definition of having a, a, you know, a realistic acceptance of our strengths and our weaknesses all right the second part of the new smart is my mental models are not reality they're only my stories of how my world works
0: they're not the but map we've
2: already, we've already talked about the fact that we go through life and we have these stories and we go through life seeking for seeking out information which confirms our stories well my stories are different than your stories all right and in order for us to you know learn and together, you know, you're going to bring a different approach. Well, I need to sort of understand it in a non-defensive way. Be open to modifying mine, and so not in my, and accept the fact my, my stories are just mine. And everyone has their own story. And the best answer is going to come when everybody's story is understood and we make the best out of it. I'm not my ideas. Is the third part. I'm not my ideas. My ego's not invested in this idea. I must decouple my beliefs and I'm not talking about values from my ego. Again, I'm trying to free up because the two big inhibitors to hyperlearning and learning or hyperlearning is ego and fear. So I've got to mitigate ego and I got to mitigate fear. All right. The whole purpose of a new smart definition and new smart mindset is to liberate people from their, their learning from their ego. Fourth, principle i must be open minded and treat my beliefs again not my values as hypothesis to be constantly tested and subject to modification by better data what that says is that we all got to think like scientists hey you know in 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 fact it, you know it, it's it's you know as as i evolved all of this i started changing my language when i when i'm in meetings with people I basically have learned how to say, my hypothesis is this. Now, what would make this wrong? Have we looked for this information? Okay. Man, that's a whole different conversation. All right. Number five, my mistakes and failures are opportunities to learn. So long as they're mistakes or failures within financial parameters, I'm not talking about, or, you know, somebody doing something crazy. All right. Because, Really and truly, in 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 a, my my learner die book, I did a, a case study on Intuit when Intuit was putting in changing their culture to an innovative culture where every employee would be empowered to innovate. In effect, Intuit was putting in their hyper learning model. All right, calling it innovation. All right, under under innovation, and they basically the senior leadership said, no longer will the word mistakes be allowed in this company. If you have an hypothesis that this is the right answer and you go and test it and the answer is different than what you expected, that's called a surprise. Mistakes are surprises unless unless you get the same surprise over and over again and you're not learning, right? So it's like, okay, let's change this defining myself by what I know or how much I know because I've lost. Technology wins. I may as well pack it up and go home, all right? Let's redefine it in a way that basically enables continuous learning, all right? Open-mindedness and mitigates the ego.
0: Otherness is another topic we want to hit. There may be some overlap with the science of us. Can you talk about otherness in the book?
2: Yeah. The concept of otherness is based on the, the, the fact that nobody can achieve their highest levels of thinking or relating excellence by themselves. All right? And uh, Barbara Fredrickson, Professor Barbara Fredrickson, who has done wonderful work in the emotional side of learning, uh, love her work, uh, you know, has made that statement. Okay? No one can achieve their highest levels of excellence by themselves. We need others. And... Unfortunately, in the business world, too many people view collaboration as a competition. We're back to this ego thing. All right. In other words, I have a company I started working with five years ago. They they have uh, two posters that they have in all their meeting rooms around the world. Listen to learn, not to confirm. Collaboration is not a competition. Collaboration is making meaning together. And so the, if you accept the fact you need others, then you need to say, okay, how do I optimize that? Well, then I need to be the type of person that others want to help. Okay. All right. I need to behave in ways which show that I respect others' opinions. Well, I need to be a really good listener. All right. And what's the science, what? How do I do that? I mean, it's more than just trying to make, have it go in my ears. How do I make you feel like I'm really listening to you? Okay. How do I behave for you to think I'm listening to you? Okay. How do I behave in a way that shows you that I respect what you're saying and I want to consider it and I want you to consider what I'm saying? So this concept of otherness brings in the whole science of Collective intelligence, collaboration, some of the other things that we're going to be talking about. So if you s- look at the building blocks, the building blocks is I got to get myself. I got to come to the table in the right way to be able to have the possibility of engaging with others in the right way, because the ultimate goal, the ultimate winners in the digital age are going to be It's going to be not my intelligence. It's going to be collective intelligence. It's why leaders have got to basically excel at putting together the right teams and helping develop these teams because it's all going to be collective intelligence, not one person's intelligence.
0: I want to skip to idea meritocracy. And that one just, that's stuck. It's like outstanding. Again, explain the concept. Yeah. Loved it.
2: In in the in the business world, generally speaking, and that's so I'm generalizing, the highest ranking person sort of has the power to say, This is the answer, I'm right, okay, you're wrong. Or say, I heard all of you, this is what we're going to do. An idea meritocracy is, if you will, an environment where power or rank is, in most cases, there'll be some cases if there's human lives if in the, in the, say, in the military and special forces and stuff like that. If there's life and death situations, all right? I'm talking about normal business work, okay? An idea meritocracy says, the best idea wins, not the most powerful person or the highest ranking person. All right. And the best idea is determined by data. All right. By data, the best data that we can get. So what you're looking for is not whose idea it's what's beneath the ideas. So there can be free and open debate. So, A junior person in the business world can raise their hand and say, I don't understand this because this research says this. So how does this fit in? And the senior person, all right, if they're trained right and if they've done the inner peace work, will say, tell me more. Tell me more. Should be willing to basically sit back and say, it's going to be the best idea wins that's an idea meritocracy the best idea wins it's not whose idea it is it's me also empowering you junior people to critique what i say to question what i say all right to ask questions and you're not going to be penalized
0: i may be mistaken but did you bring up the after action review in the context of idea meritocracy i can't remember but I do know you bring up AARs, yeah. but that's another way just to flesh out ideas, the best idea winning, even if something after the fact is doing the yes. after action review.
2: Yes. And and and, 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 yes, and yeah. After action review is one of the practice should be standard in every organization, in every meeting, every thing that goes on. And Gary Klein's pre-mortem is a wonderful tool. Also, uh, Gary's, uh, you know, everything Gary writes is great. He's got the great, great list of how you how you basically uh, you know gain insights from from data. But the, the pre mortem, in effect, is sit back and make you know and make believe that your idea doesn't work. All right, and why would it not work? Well, have you basically preempted those things? Have you basically taken that into consideration? Can you mitigate it before you? Uh, go back. And so it's almost like reverse engineering, if you will. And, uh, and so, uh, and there's, there's in the, in the hyperlearning book uh, there's lots of templates um, uh, um, and lots of practices that are put out there so that it's basically the, the book is a how to book, but it also, you know, for the different ways of thinking and it's got a reflective listening checklist. It's, you know, it's got checklist for lots of the things we're talking about based on best practices that people have used that people can start. They don't have to build their checklist and they can say, OK, for this meeting, I need this. You know, I'm working on this. Say, say I'm working on um, idea meritocracy. All right. Or we should have basically a, a process that we go through to make sure everyone speaks up to make sure that the silent, quiet people speak up also and that they're protected and to fully get everything on the table and then to have a conversation, generally speaking, that's not dominated by the senior person. Ego has got to get out of the way, all right? It's, uh, it's, it's um, uh, Eric Schmidt of, of Google because Google uses an idea of meritocracy, Said that you know it's an, we have an idea meritocracy, and this is a hard word that he made up. Not a tenurocracy. In other words, the highest ranking person.
0: That makes sense. It's very,
2: and it's very and it's very hard for senior people to to do. But what you find out is is that is that when they do it, they don't lose. Nobody thinks less of them as a human being. In fact, people think more of them. All right, because. They're open because their goal is is for us to have the best result, to add the most value and to be the most successful, everybody in the team. It's not ego. So
0: I'm going to use your words. This is a theory. This is a hypothesis. But Frederick Winslow Taylor still lives. And I think command and control still lives. And that's why I think idea meritocracy Sometimes it gets pushed aside because you've got some men and women who lead, again, command and control. And that's why I believe this concept is so universal. All your concepts are universal and they all tie together. But that one just really resonated. I want to move on to another topic or two words that have hit my radar, I would say, in the last 18 months. And that's the whole concept of psychological safety. And I appreciated this coming up, making its way in the book. Uh, You mentioned Google a few minutes ago. Uh, This is something that they've studied and take seriously. So again, hypothesis, theory, Ed, that a company where an employee does not feel psychologically safe, you're not going to have strong performance. True, false? What's your thoughts?
2: True. True. The two, let's go back to to our basics. The two big human inhibitors to learning are ego and fear. We've talked about the ego part with new smart. We've talked about the ego part with idea meritocracy. We talked about the ego part with quieting ego. Fear. People need psychological safety is the key psychological principle that must exist in an organization where people feel safe to speak up. Now, of course, I'm talking about speaking up respectfully, etc., all of that, okay? And... That's a huge issue. That is a huge issue because if people are fearful, all right, first, their body's going to be stressed. Their thinking is going to be not at the highest level. Their listening's not going to be at the highest level. The conversation's not going to be at the highest level. And your results are going to be suboptimized. All right. And, and so, and the, you know, the, 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 the leading person working on uh, uh, psychological safety in the United States today is Amy, Professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard, who's a wonderful person. And um, and she's got, um, you know, she has books on this. And what what I have done in this book is to focus on, okay, how does a manager or a leader need to behave in order for someone to feel safe? Okay. Okay. So many people say in a meeting, everybody's, this is a psychologically safe environment. Everybody can speak up and someone will not speak up. And the leader may say, okay, Jim, uh, why didn't you speak up? Well, that's the absolute wrong question to ask. It's Jim. What do I need to do to help you feel safe? The leader owns psychological safety.
0: And that may not feel natural to ask that, right?
2: That's right. That's right. And, oh, for a leader? No. I mean, that's not natural at all. And uh, and so if people don't feel safe, you're going to have suboptimal results. I mean, it's that simple. But it, it it's, it's a major change. It's a major change. And what it takes is, is leaders being authentic and transparent in sharing their weaknesses, sharing their stories. What it takes is humanizing the workplace. That's what it takes, is making it more human instead of, you're right, commanding control in the, in the digital age. Commanding control is the surest way to obsolescence or to extinction. If you require human beings, if you if your business can be completely roboticized, all right, with smart robots, you command and control robots all you want. Okay, the reality of it is you you can't do it by yourself. And so then you're going to come back to the same issues. Uh, But so it's the the workplace, the Industrial Revolution model of command and control of hierarchy, my way of the highway, you know etc. That's gone. That's going to be gone. It's got to go to a very humanistic enabling environment that enables people to be working on developing their inner peace and their learning skills at the same time that there is, is a w- In effect, all of the work that humans are going to be de- doing on themselves has to also be done in the workplace. Okay, I, and because then it will. If you think about it, if I'm working on listening and I have my checklist, and I'm and I go into meetings and no one else is working on listening and no one talks about it, then I got to go home and think about it and think about how I'm changed. But if at the end of a meeting we take five minutes and everybody agrees they're working on listening and give each other feedback and how could we have done this better, I'm bringing my development into the workplace so that we can accelerate the attainment of digital, I'll call it human excellence in the digital age in the workplace. That's why the environment in the workplace has got to become humanized, not this hierarchical commanding control. The best companies are going to be the ones that basically can take, can basically take, basically become human development companies. All right. Every business is going to be in a human development business in addition to its core business. That's a fact.
0: And this is a perfect segue of going into our next topic, by the way, I want to be respectful of your time. We're going a little long. Is it okay if we can keep going a few more minutes? Sure. Sure. Cause yes. th- this is one of your topics, but high quality, meaningful conversations. How does that work in a caring, trusting environment? Uh, jump in and yeah. cause that comes out in the book too.
2: Yeah. Uh, And you said something very important, Mark. You got to have a caring, trusting environment to get here. So we're assuming we got a caring, trusting environment. So why is high quality making meaning conversations so important? Because the way we are wired, we generally believe everybody thinks like we think. We think that people interpret or we think that people either interpret or define words the same way we do. Okay. Okay. And when you really ask people and get in the habit of what did you mean by that, you learn real quick that it's not what you thought they meant because they mean something different than you do. All right. And so making meaning conversations are not about advocacy or self-promotion or competition. They're seeking to understand others and seeking to be understood by others. So let's have let's make meaning. What do you mean by that? Okay. well, how does that fit with that? All right. What it allows us to do is to explore and discover and see differences that either we can use to create some new idea or new product or new service. But it basically respects each person's individuality. And what making meaning conversations lead to is collective intelligence, which is key but if you you you've heard of flow psychological flow and you know most people that you know usually thought about it being in athletic situations or in high stress situations mountain climbing or whatever but flow is when you're all in consumed by the either the topic or the challenge right and you sort of lose sense of self and it's like, you know, great basketball great basketball players is a, a good example of Michael Jordan or something. I mean, you know, they basically are visualizing the play before it's happening. And they're basically just all in. They're not stopping and thinking. They're just going with the flow. Well, the goal in all of this high quality making meaning conversations is to have collective flow of a team. And it is amazing. All right. Now, I'm telling a story. I'm not here. This is not ego or anything. I'm sharing with your audience why this is so important, but I'm also sharing that this stuff can happen. All right. Uh, I have one, one client that I've been working with for some years. uh, And with the senior leadership team, we've, we've, we've gone through, we've, 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 we've built trust. We care about each other. Okay. You know, once a quarter, they, they fly into here and four or five people and they can sit down and they have practices and they start each meeting. Okay. With a check-in, how's everybody doing? Where, where's your mind? Where, how are you doing emotionally? Just how you feeling? So everybody sort of got to feel and then they do a five minute meditation. All right. Mindfulness meditation, calm everything down. Okay. And we can, and they don't, they don't have an agenda. and We just, people start talking. Within 10 minutes, we can be what I call in collective flow. Everybody can be all in, totally consumed. And what happens when you get in collective flow is emergent thinking. Stuff starts coming out of you that's not planned. All right, that's you're you're so comfortable and still inside your subconscious and your conscious is interacting your minds, and new ideas are coming up. And people say, "Where did that come from?" I don't know what it. What about this? Wow, this is like. I mean. That's where all of this stuff comes together. And that's the highest levels of human performance. And that's what we're all going to be seeking. Not to do that every day in every meeting, but to basically to have more of those types of conversations than we're having now. And as we develop and over over time and period, people build trust. So it's this making meaning is, okay, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. What's the difference? And being open and just letting it sort of – it's not advocacy. It's not uh, fixed fortifications. It's not competition. Uh, and it's and the key thing is is that happens when someone believes. Let's say you and I are on a team. You will move towards what we'll call collect, collective intelligence. You will move towards making meaning conversations when you believe – I truly care about you, which is defined as I want you to be as successful as I want me to be. If I believe that you care about me in a way that you're going to help me be successful in my job, you're not going to make me look bad. You're not going to submarine me. You're not going to walk out of here and tell the boss how stupid my idea was. All right. You, you cut all that corporate crap out. Okay. All the corporate gamesmanship. It's got to go in the digital age in order for humans to optimize their cognitive, emotional, and behavioral performance. All of that stuff's got to go.
0: All of this is outstanding. And, Ed, if you trust us, if you don't mind, Bruce and I will address the dual bottom line. So we'll book in. And, again, the dual bottom line is outstanding. That could be a whole But in a way, that's kind of the end result, is I can see the dual bottom line as a starting point, but it's also a great ending point, too. So Bruce and I will hit that. So let's kind of wrap this up a little bit. And again, thank you for your time, but uh, we're doing this on a Zoom recording. Now, I'm not recording the video, but I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you. You're obviously a reader. It may be unfair to ask you your favorite books, but are there any that you like to gift uh clients that you have that you may hey i recommend these three or four as an author who's written 12 books it may be hard not to i think you had to read hyper learning or i think in this context smart growth might be a a good book uh humility the the new learning uh that that could be but are there books that you just like you recommend
2: yeah there's there's some books i i and i I never you know i'm Thank, thank you for listening mine. I I never recommend mine and uh in the sense that uh, unless it's a unless it's a new client and they're talking about how can you how can you help me, well you need to look at this. But clients that I have the the, the hard the hard thing is the the three of four. So let me let me try and basically move between, if you will, disciplines. I think If you start with the ancient philosophies for a moment, because I think that is important, there's a really great book called The Path, what Chinese philosophers can teach us about the good life by uh, Michael Puitt and Christine Grosla. It's called The Path. That's a good book. I think if you're thinking about relating to people in in the world, it's fascinating to read Huston Smith's book on the world's religions because he studies the seven great religions. And the fascinating thing in that book is the the underlying values of all those religions are the same. Mm. So if you're looking for how to basically understand people from different backgrounds and different cultures, that's, that's an interesting book. If you're looking at psychology, especially emotional psychology, Barbara Fredrickson's books, uh, Positivity and Love 2.0, are just foundational about how emotions are so important and how to emotionally connect and relate to people. And Jane Dutton in Michigan also has good books on that. If you're looking at thinking books, Gary Klein's four books are outstanding. Uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow is the Bible.
0: Outstanding.
2: Uh, If you're looking on at History in the future. There's a small book, and I read it every year, in January of every year, by Will and Ariel Durant, The Lessons of History. Yep, it is. It is a. It is a great book, and it's small. and And it's. It's. I mean, it's. It's true. Uh, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at history, you Noah Harari's book, *Sapiens*. Uh, it's a longer book, but the story of human history, uh, and. All of his, you know, he's has three books. Uh, he's a, a, a wonderful thought leader talking about the digital age and, and his, his other books. We're talking about collaboration. W- uh, William Isaac's book on dialogue, The Art of Thinking, is a great book, okay, from MIT. What's fascinating is is the best work on collaboration, collective intelligence, uh, and the, has been done at at MIT, uh, an engineering school, all right, and a computer science school. That's fascinating, and um, and the work on collective intelligence, their findings on what makes a great team, uh, is so, you know, mind-boggling. That Carnegie Mellon said this can't be right, and Carnegie Mellon went and did the same experiments, and they confirmed everything MIT said. So you got two schools, engineering computer science schools, basically confirming. Um, uh, research, which says, okay, that, uh, you know, the most innovative or creative teams and the best problem-solving teams are teams made up of five women and no men, because women are wired, if you will, to collaborate and make meaning They view collaboration as a relational, not as a transactional. Now, that doesn't mean there's not men who are good collaborators. It doesn't mean men can't learn to be good collaborators. It doesn't mean all women are good collaborators. But it shows that men approach collaboration differently than women. And how women approach it, we need to learn. We need to quiet the ego and be more relational, trying to understand than competitive.
0: Last question, and you've had a chance to maybe think about this. What will be your TEDx talk? Now, you are already teaching at a major university, so I usually ask the question, what would be your TEDx talk at a local small college, but it could be yours. Have you had a chance to think about that? What would it be? What would be the topic?
2: I think based on my experience with my last three books, which have all basically they built upon themselves. They're like building blocks, which has been about learning. And based on my experience of talks that I've given here at the university with undergrad students, I'd stick with the topic of the science of us, about having people embrace and try to understand how are we wired, okay? We used to seek confirmation, to seek affirmation of our ego, and to seek cohesiveness, and to then explain that that will not bring excellence in the digital age. We have to rewire ourselves to basically seek the new, seek novelty to embrace differences and to learn how to go in the unknown and figure out what to do. All right. And that would be uh, that because I think that's, that's the thing that's sort of missing in the, Conversations of a lot of stuff that's going on about the digital age.
0: I hope. Again, I want to say, Mister Hess, but Ed, I hope this is not the last time we get to chat. Um, There may be a time where I just want to drop you an email, but I am, I am a fan. I was already a fan. I've been, by the way, I've been, I've been taking notes. (laughs) Sorry, Uh, this is outstanding. But this has been an honor. I thank you very much
2: well i I thank you and and please please i'd welcome you to stay in touch and everything because I learned from our conversations because you 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 raise questions and it makes me think and then i gotta it's this this is not a one way all right so i would i would i would welcome a continuing relationship and and I applaud you for all the work you've done and and for this opportunity uh to reach the people that have trust in you et cetera and so It's been, it's, it's, it's amazing. It is actually flown by. Okay. And that's, that's, that's when you know it was good.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. At the end of the interview, Bruce, we said, or I said, Bruce and I will talk about the dual Bottom line, and because of my schedule and because of your schedule, I'm afraid we would butcher it if we spent a few minutes talking about the dual bottom lines. I think you and I will save that for a dedicated show because it deserves to be addressed. But let's just let's just take the let's just take the lay person's definition of Ed's dual bottom line that he addresses near the end of the book: hyper learning, hyper learning. So it's, it's putting equal emphasis, and I would even use the word equitable, some equity to both people, development, and financial performance, human development, financial performance. It can't be one or the other. It can't be heavily tilted on one, heavily tilted on the other. What are your thoughts on that? I have a feeling this is an important topic to you, uh, Bruce. Even as a CFO, right?
1: Yeah, this is an important topic because I think, like anything, if you get out of balance uh, on, on one thing or another, or go super extreme on one type of an element, it, it causes problems down the line. And when you know, business is people, <clears throat> and if if the the human. Um, the human element isn't brought into executive leadership um, at the expense of uh, or at the um, by overbalancing financial performance. Ultimately, an organization is going to start to wither and die. <clears throat> um, there's a lot of shortcuts you can take if you just focus on financial performance. At the same time, there you are there to run a business, and there's certain things of there's certain elements of accountability, responsibility, and um and holding people to some degree accountable for their own growth and development, um, there's there, you, they, it can't be you can't overemphasize to the other direction as well. So I think there's a there that dual bottom line in equal um, equal importance is an extremely important concept.
0: If you were to invite Ed Hess, <laughs> and I still want to call him Mister Hess, I just I respect him. A great deal. I, I just, I admire and appreciate him. So it's hard calling him Ed. And Ed, I think you're listening to this last, to our outro here. Again, forgive me, even though he says, call me Ed. If you are to invite him to one of your leadership meetings or a quarterly meeting, you'll hear him at least once say, okay, guys, this is my perspective, or this is my hypothesis. I'm going to ask you the same thing. What is your what is your perspective or your hypothesis on why some CEOs maybe don't think about the people aspect in business? It it is easy to do. Even me, I have to think about don't forget to say you appreciate that person what they're doing. Don't forget to let that person know how important they are in in the company. It's easy to forget those things, right?
1: yeah it, it's easy to forget those things and and actually a couple of weeks ago um there was there's an analysis that I do that um you know we needed one more month of it and but the, the time was pretty short, and I was talking to um one of our teammates and and he said, well, if you don't have time you can um you know you can we we can we can get by without it and i and I said, you know sometimes it's nice to just sit back and do some work that doesn't talk back to me and I think it's easy to get stuck in that trap of 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 grasping to those things that aren't complex and human development is a very complex topic and it doesn't provide consistently doesn't provide immediate feedback you know it's feedback over time it's feed, you know it's like working out you know you don't become significantly stronger by bench pressing one time it's incremental development over a period of time without discipline that can be that doesn't provide some of the same rewards as a financial topic would.
0: I already know the answer to this, Bruce, because you have, I mean, I think you are rare in that you're one of those people who puts a heavy emphasis on just ongoing coaching. You may have a review, an annual review that you do with your staff members but you are doing ongoing coaching, on, ongoing mentoring. It's, it's like a sports metaphor. Somebody does something good, bad, you're going to let them know about it immediately. So what are your last thoughts on why a CFO needs to be very focused on ongoing coaching, mentoring, as we talk about people, human development?
1: Well I, I use the word investment and I think that's where the C, Great you know, word the, where the CFO um, the CFO relationship comes in. It is an investment just like investing in in hard assets. Investing in people is probably the most important investment you can make.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. love it. Bruce, we got to wrap up, don't we?
1: All right, let's wrap it up. Mark enjoyed our time. Uh, today. Enjoyed the uh, um, opportunity to learn more about Ed Hess. Everybody out there, stay safe, stay well, practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon.